another unannounced live broadcast. We're going to start off today on the Conversations That Matter podcast with, uh, let's see, we'll do a travel update, but first, let's do this. I saw this on uh, on Twitter. I don't really go on Twitter much, but I was looking for something else because that's where a lot of research is done. What does someone think about something? Well, if they have a Twitter account, you can generally find out. So I was looking something up, and this came across uh, the page, and I watched it, and then I saw that this is a video that MSNBC dropped about January 6th, uh, I believe yesterday or today. It's very recent. So I think it was yesterday. So this is MSNBC, which obviously for those who, I think everyone knows, but if you don't, very uh, leftist news organization, media organization. And they set up a focus group on January 6th. And this is, here's a clip. It's a almost three minutes long of how the people in this focus group reacted to the journalists' questions about January 6th. And this is, a, by the way, this is Pennsylvania, just so you know, because of the political situation and uh, the elections this is where they're doing it. So this is Pitt, Pittsburgh area Trump voters and what they think about January 6th. Take a listen. Mastriano was at the insurrection and he was photographed breaching one of the restricted areas. Is that okay? Which area? Because I saw a video where Capitol officers yes. were taking away barriers and unlocking doors, doors. People. So, yeah. I mean, I... They opened the gates. So it shouldn't be disqualifying for an elected official no, no, no. if they no, participated in January 6th. He didn't, he didn't strike anybody. He didn't hurt anybody. Yeah, and the only one that died was a protester there, not a Capitol Police An unarmed officer. female veteran. Was That's the only one that died. That's well, the only one who died. A police officer did die. No. It was a stroke. Attack. That's not... That's not, not on site. Caused by that, that's because right. he shouldn't have been a police officer. It was one woman. So, what do you him. make though overall of January sixth? I mean, it was watching that footage. It was pretty disturbing. I mean, there were people throwing excrement at the walls, and it was our, you know, it's the Capitol. That it looked a lot true. like Antifa's actions. Yeah, it looked it's a lot of, except on a much smaller scale. It looked the same as the Black Lives Matter riots. That's it's what I saw. The similarities to the country, Minneapolis burns. Kenosha burns. But so it's okay Waukesha just because burns. just because I, one side that you no, disagree with. I'm it's saying okay Antifa for, infiltrated. It's good for one. It's good for the other. Anybody I don't who see harmed anybody, anybody who caused property destruction, that needs to be dealt with. Yeah, but if you're there your making side. your voice heard at the right. people's house, no less. Yeah. That, that's again, it's a fundamental constitutional right of an American citizen. And people should not be being held political prisoner uh, because of it. For misdemeanors. That's I mean, East Germany. That's East Germany. Tactics. Yeah, that's what's scary. It was an actual fiery but mostly peaceful protest. And the other ones that, that were the opposite. <laughs> was the protest legitimate our, in your eyes administration, because... I feel like, is using it as their Reichstag fire. Yeah. That's exactly what they're using it as. Mm -hmm. Do you think that President Trump could have quelled the violence that day? Not him. I, I don't think no. so, no. I don't think so. It started while he was still speaking. I was actually there. I, I, I was there to, to see what I thought was going to be the last time I ever saw Trump in Little Island. So did he tell everybody to go and, and start rioting? No. I didn't think so. No, it, and it actually, um, I, I, I stayed for the whole speech, like, a ton of people did. Mm -hmm. And then we all headed to the Capitol because he said, let's go to the Capitol and, and 
peacefully let, peacefully, let our voices pure. be heard. And we get to the Capitol, we're like, what the hell's going on? Because it had already happened. I'm pretty sure I saw Democratic operatives instigating people to oh, cross totally. barriers. Mastriano was at the... Okay, so that's, that's the clip that was released. And the reason I wanted to play that for you, number one, I thought it was funny that this was on MSNBC, which uh, I don't know if the reporter... Or the whoever was asking these questions as journalist was expecting the answer she got. But I wanted to make a, a few other points, one being that this is Pennsylvania. And you think of how close Pennsylvania is to Washington, D.C. I was in Virginia at the time and I attended the rally. Uh, I didn't go into the Capitol or anything, but I was also there for Trump's entire speech that day. And uh, I hadn't even reached the Capitol, uh, the, even within sight of the Capitol, when um, I got a phone call from my brother and the phones weren't working well that day, but somehow my brother was able to get through and say there, there's been a breach. And I, I had no, I was curious because I thought who, who would be doing that when the president, you would have had to, you couldn't have been there for Trump's speech at the end. So I was close to that situation. And so were these voters in Pittsburgh. They were close enough to go down. I'm wondering whether or not this would be a different story if, say, it was people in, I don't know, uh, Colorado or maybe Florida or Arizona or somewhere that was farther away, because there were people coming from those states, but not as many. But in Pennsylvania, there was a lot of people, local people who were Trump supporters who ended up going to this. And that was also the day. It was that morning. I remember this. It was it was either the day before it was that morning is when I saw it that the Pennsylvania legislature uh, requested that the, uh, they, I don't remember, I don't think they decertified, they didn't decertify, but they were, uh, they made a statement about uh, signaling the in intention to decertify eventually or something along those lines. I just remember that, that was the day. Pennsylvania was a, a one of the most, um, and I got to be careful how I state this on YouTube just because of the, so I'm, I'm erasing what I was going to say and trying to phrase it differently here. Pennsylvania was one of the, let's say, most controversial situations. And a lot of the voters from there that voted for Trump were very upset. And because they were so close to where this rally occurred in D.C., a lot of them came. And I think that is what went around the media, including some quote-unquote conservative media that uh, now, apparently, it's so interesting to me, is buying into the narrative that I'm seeing history actually rewritten in real time. I, Sean Hannity, even, not too long ago, was using January 6th to smear someone just because they were in attendance there. And it just it's amazing to me how, quote-unquote, even conservatives are now buying into at least aspects of what amounts to a narrative from the left that's just not true at all. So good for these uh, these focus group participants for pointing out a lot of the things that I saw. All, all the things they mentioned are things I saw uh, that day. And I think it's a good argument for localism. And when I when I say localism, what, what I mean by that is uh, a situation, a governing situation in which human scale is set at an appropriate level so that the people who are making decisions for their region that affect their lives are uh, able to be in the know about uh, the factors that they should be considering uh, 
that, that would inform them to make those decisions. So we have a lot of information coming at us every day. We can't process all of it. If you spent all day just on news websites, you didn't work, you didn't do anything else, you would still be, you, you would not be in the know about everything. You would still have something lacking because you could know more about maybe an international political situation or something, right? And so I talk about it, I'll talk about it today, some international stuff, but I am realistic. We don't have the capacity to know everything. And, and that's one of the problems when you have a larger and larger government and now geopolitical corporations and bodies of people who act like a government, uh, they're dealing with things that are so on such a large scale that and are actually they have their tentacles in so many different places all over the globe as a common person who has bills to pay and kids to feed and all the rest of the things that you do on a daily basis you just don't have the time how, how in the world can there be accountability there but when you know your neighbor when the situations that affect you are happening in your backyard when the person that you've elected is someone that has a good reputation in the community for character and honesty and then you can actually have accountability. You can have more of a say. And I think that in Pennsylvania, because of how close they were, the media spin on an event like uh, January 6th is not going to be as potent, as influential as it would in other states, simply because they were close geographically to where it happened. So it reminded me, it was an example I probably would have used, perhaps, in the speech that I gave at the Jesus and Politics Conference on Saturday, where... Uh, I was giving a lot of examples of what people can do on a local level to reclaim some of the things that we've given to, uh, even in the church, to parachurch ministries, but not just in the church when it comes to what Washington does or when it comes to where we even buy our products from, uh, from corporations that, that have little concern really for us and, and our interests. It's just much better to think local. And some of that is organically starting to happen, but Things like uh, community gardens and local, you know, fresh produce farm markets. I mean, this is in food, of course, uh, bartering. Um, and I was at a church actually uh, this summer where, and this isn't like an official church ministry, but the people there just got together and said, well, you have this skill, I have this skill, let's barter. Uh, I mean, some of the things that I haven't seen tried but would be great to see are things like private libraries. If you don't like Drag Queen Story Hour, then... Maybe consider uh, creating a library that's better than the local public library, having events there. Some of this takes some startup capital, but uh, some of it doesn't. You can start small. I've, I've seen these little free libraries all over the place that are just little stands with books in them. And, and you can start with something as small as that. Uh, I mean, homeschool groups, uh, homeschooling is huge now. Start a school at your church if possible. That might not be possible depending on what state you're in, other factors. I know in my state, that's really not that possible, but uh, in many states it is. And so don't outsource things that you can do on the local level. That's how you gain, regain more control over your life. And, and, that's, and, and when you care more about what local politicians, who still I think have more probably say over your life than even people on a national level, when, you, when we care more about that and we understand the inner workings of that better, uh, then I think we're able to have more accountability and more of a voice. And that you've heard of trickle down, but that kind of trickles up. So uh, that's my little localist uh, 
speech for this morning, but I, I thought that was a good inroad into uh, talking about that. And, and we'll talk about it some more. Uh, I'll share with you. In fact, right now, maybe is a good time. I'll just share with you a little bit about what took place over the weekend. I went to uh, Indiana and, uh, and I'm seeing now the, the comments coming in. Hi from Oregon. Uh, hello. Yeah. And, and uh, some people are getting on. So anyways, as people continue to uh, come onto the live stream, there's not many right now. It's not really, it's three o'clock in the afternoon in the Eastern time on a Monday. So, and I didn't announce that I was doing this, but um, anyway, uh, people will also see this later. I'll leave it up. I was away in Indiana in Kendallville on Thursday night with uh, Pastor uh, Andrew Friend. And then uh, on Saturday, I was at the Jesus and Politics Conference in Syracuse, Indiana with Tim Bushong, uh, Joseph Spurgeon was there. I got to meet a number of you actually that listened to the podcast. It was a blessing. And um, I've been there before. I was there last year. So it was a really huge thing for me. I, I haven't actually spoken at the same place twice. Well, no, I have actually. There's one place. So so this is a similar experience. But I don't usually, because I've been doing speaking like this for such a short period of time, I've been doing, doing the videos longer, but speaking, uh, it's nice to go to the same place and you start to cultivate relationships with people there. And that's, it's really, um, it's awesome. And so I felt that way about the Jesus and politics conference and it's, it's small, it's a small church in the middle of uh, a cornfield basically in Indiana, but, uh, people were driving from distances. And I talked to the pastor there, Tim, and I said, you know, it'd be awesome if maybe next year we can find a bigger facility and really, you know, get some other speakers and, and make this a big thing. I think there's some potential here. So we'll see what happens uh, with that. But um, I mean, he started this two years ago when it was just a last minute decision. Hey, let's have a conference next month. And then they did it again. And then uh, this was the third time. So uh, yeah, this is the third time. And then I guess they'll do it again probably next year. So, uh, but I, I spoke first in Kendallville on uh, just social justice in general. It's a presentation I've given many times about the history and responding to it from a Christian understanding. And most of the people there were not familiar with the podcast, but they were concerned about what they were seeing. And this is a very, in my opinion, from my perspective, living in an area that's very secular, it was a very Christian area. I walked into the hotel and they're playing Christian music, which I was very impressed with. Uh, it was a, a corporate hotel as well. So I thought, wow, they can do that. That's awesome. Um, so very Christianized area in that sense, but there's still this kind of foreboding spirit. There's this sense of just fear, worry, I, I would say, just um, bracing oneself for what is to come. And some of the problems afflicting other areas aren't afflicting there as much, but some of them are. Even illegal migration is now becoming an issue in Indiana. And this, I remember when this was unique to places like California and Texas, border states. Now, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And, and they're, so they're dealing with that. They're dealing with uh, schools, uh, failing schools, these kinds of things that you hear about on the news. And it might be to a lesser extent, but it's, it's unfamiliar territory to people who haven't been used to that their whole life. And now, all of a sudden, they're seeing these changes. But I was really encouraged by this. There were several... Uh, people from different churches there. And um, there was a, a local pastor who wasn't at the church I was speaking at, who apparently did a three-week study on social justice and condemned it. Uh, they stopped doing a, a David Platt study they were going to do for, uh, I don't know if it was a men's group or what, but 
uh, I think it might have been their their youth group, and they said, we're not doing David Platt here. And you had a pastor in that area that really took a stand, and he had a reputation in the community because of it, which is what I think some people are afraid of. But it was very positive for people even at other churches thought, yeah, I know that, that pastor, he took a stand on that. And word got around, and it, it helped. It kind of prepared some of them, I think, for what I was saying, because I, I think I went into a little more depth on, on certain aspects that maybe uh, the, the pastor had not covered. So it, the more reinforcements, the more explanation, the better. It's not just a one—we wouldn't—give an example. We wouldn't think in Mormon country, if you had a church there, well— we've hit Mormonism once. We did a three-part series. We don't need to talk about it. No, of course you do, because it's still Mormon country. Until everyone's converted or they switch to another belief system, it's still Mormon country. So it's the same, I think, in general in the United States and in the Western world. We're in social justice country. And so we have to be reminded of those things. And, and the repetition is even important. And even preaching to the choir, I think, is important. People need that encouragement. They need to know they're not alone. And uh, so I was encouraged. I also heard heartbreaking stories, though, from people that are coming from situations that look like they're going to be church splits or situations that were church splits. And that is always hard to hear. But there's even in that a sense of encouragement that there are the remnant is waking up. They're asking questions and they're the right questions. They're starting to catch on to this. Uh, And I think the first phase in that process of knowing there's a problem is already finished. And people know there's a problem. That the God's sheep hear his voice. And when they hear things that are different from that, at the very least, they start to ask questions. And that's that's happening. And so the next step is what we, what do we do from here? How do we uh, how do we build from the ruins? And that's what I spoke about in uh, Syracuse, Indiana, at the Jesus and Politics Conference. And so I am assuming that will be posted eventually. Tim Bushong will probably put it out there eventually. And when it is out there, I will uh, post it on social media accounts for people to check out if you're interested uh, in that. So anyway, um, had a good time with that and shared some things I had not shared on the podcast. And I, I try to do that when I speak. If we're gonna, If I'm going to speak on a special topic, I'm sharing things that um, I want you to come out, right? So I'm going to share things that, that maybe ideas, uh, in fact, in this case, it was an idea I'm kicking around for the next book I write. It's going to probably be one of the chapters, Rebuilding from the Ruins. So uh, anyway, uh, some questions now. I'm looking at the uh, feed. We got more people. We got 51 people now streaming. John, um, one of the He Gets Us campaign, I went and watched some of the videos on the campaign web- website. It was bad. Yes, yes. And I actually did a video on the He Gets Us campaign website. And uh, yes, hello uh, to Michigan. We had several people from Michigan at the conference, actually, which was, it's kind of a drive. So I was honored. And, and so anyway, it was a good time. And uh, I'm looking forward to being back. One of the things I was going to mention, though, and this is going to be uh, a, let's see, how, where do I want to go from here? Well, we can talk about it now. Um, I want to talk about a little bit this controversy happening online in Christian circles on Stephen Wolf's book, but it's so much broader than that. It's not really, Stephen Wolf is just the opportunity or the occasion for, I think, this disagreement to emerge. The disagreement's been there for a long time. And there's so many different ways to present this to you. And I've probably presented it in different ways before. But today, I want to uh, talk about something a little bit to get started with the podcast that I've mentioned before, but I think I've fine-tuned a few things in my mind that uh, just bear some some repeating and or 
um, some new thoughts, even new ways to phrase some of this that I want you to be aware of, because I had a good conversation with Tim Bushong and also Joseph Spurgeon about this. And we, we were around a campfire. Tim, Tim had a campfire. We roasted some hot dogs and we were talking about uh, th this current controversy. And it, the controversy is over Christian nationalism, but it's really not. This predated Christian nationalism, the term being used uh, in a pejorative way, which is pretty recent. So what's the controversy? Well, we, we started talking about some of the reformed guys online and what some of these reformed guys have said who are critical of Christian nationalism. And one of the themes I've noticed, and they both noticed it too, is that uh, there's a tendency to, especially among a certain demographic, age demographic, so a little old, older than me, there is a tendency to think of America, and, and, and that's synonymous with the nation of America. So when you say America, you're talking about a nation, right? So you hear that language a lot. Uh, God, we want God to bless our nation, our nation, our nation, right? The, the, you don't hear younger people as much using the, the nation term to refer to America. I've noticed this, but it's very much ingrained if you're older, okay? And so the way, though, that, that I think commonly people who are politically conservative think of nation when they think of America is that America is different than all the other nations. In this sense, America is built upon an idea. And for the right, that's usually an idea of freedom or inalienable rights or uh, liberty. For the left, they actually agree with that. They'll say America is an idea, but they'll say it's equality. It's equity, inclusion, diversity, and it's this it was the beginning of something that's still ongoing, right? So the right, uh, depending on who you're talking to, they'll they'll say, is actually a good question to ask, when was America great, right? Make America great again, Donald Trump's theme. But when was America great? Was it 1776? Now, <laughs> wait, that's before the Constitution, right? So is that even America yet? Was it um, was it when the Constitution was ratified? Was it was it when the slaves were freed? Was it when women got the right to vote? Was it when we emerged from World War II? Was it after the Civil Rights Movement? Was it... All right, so you see what I'm asking is, at what stage, what stage do you want to conserve? If you want to go back to something, what stage is it that you want to conserve? Or what, if it's not a stage, what elements from a stage do you want to conserve, okay? So, Because we can all recognize there's sinful problems at every stage in human experience in history. So there, no one in their right mind, at least, who's thinking carefully about this, wants to 100% go back to any stage in human history because they, they don't want the sins associated with that time. But we can certainly compare, I, I can do this, I can say the 90s were, there was more freedom and people were generally more Christian in the sense that they upheld Christian morality than they are today in 2022. So do I want to go back to everything that was in the 90s? Well, no. <laughs> I remember what Bill Clinton did. I still, that was one of my earlier memories. I remember seeing it on the the, the magazine rack, checking out for the, for the groceries with my mom and wondering, what, what are they talking about? Who's, why did, what did Monica Lewinsky do? What, what is this? So 
of course, I don't want to conserve everything from the 90s. There's things that happened that were negative, right? But I can still recognize there was some, it was better comparatively in many respects. So when, when we think of the United States and when we think of the stage in which we want to conserve, if we're conservatives, then we have to start thinking through what kinds of things, what, uh, what are those true and valuable elements that we want to conserve, and when were they best conserve, or, or when were they best uh, uh, seen as, as something that was influential or present in social life? So that hard question being asked, it's really not actually that hard, but it's just we're not used to thinking of it. That question being asked that kind of helps us get behind, I think, much of the rhetoric and ask actually some really deeper questions. When we start drilling down into that, we're going to find, I think, two groups on the, roughly speaking, on the conservative side emerge, okay? One group is going to say this. America is an idea, like I just articulated to you, and that idea is liberty or inalienable rights or whatever. And therefore, we need to get back to this ideal, Anyway, we've drifted somehow. We need to get back to it. So um, after civil rights, that's when it was. Or after the Civil War. Or uh, we get, you need to get back to when the founders, when, when they enshrined the Bill of Rights, that's when we need to. So whenever the stage is, that's, they, they're going to pick something, right? That was a good time. Now today, I think most political conservatives are like saying, they think Bill Clinton probably was a good time. I mean, so many of them are for same-sex marriage. And, and, or, and even I heard this the other day from a, a national voice that, well, if adults want to do sex reassignment surgery, that's okay. You know, that's fine. Just kids. Kids shouldn't, they, they shouldn't have to do that or they shouldn't uh, be allowed to make that decision for themselves. So you see, even in that, that's a compromise. That's conserving a, an, an earlier stage of progressivism. And, and this is what uh, Robert Louis Dabney, uh, and I'm just, saying his name because I don't want to uh, I don't want to plagiarize here he said it and it's just a good observation doesn't mean I agree with everything Dabney said but in this observation he said you know what conservatism is it's just the shadow American conservatism he said it's just the shadow that follows progressivism to perdition because once you start saying that America is just an idea of equality or even liberty or something well those those terms in in as we've uh, as as things have aged in our society, those terms have even, our conception of what those things are has even changed. And it's not really that rooted. So the distance between what a conservative is and what a progressive is seems to be moving along like this. So in other words, the, the distance between them doesn't change, but the conservative will always be, well, in this, yeah, in this case, to the, to the right of the progressive. So they're always to the right, but they're moving left, right? So that's that's one in my mind. That's just kind of like one one side of the coin. It's inevitable that even if someone wants to go back to 1776 or 1787 or whatever, even if they love the founders, if they have that philosophy, they're naturally, I think, just going to fall into this trap of of thinking that America itself, the definition of what makes a nation, who we are as a people is contingent on valuing certain abstract ideas in one's mind. Now, 
Here's the other side, okay? And that's awfully convenient in some ways, by the way, because you can just denounce people as not American. <laughs> How many times do you see that? Now, you're just not American. It's like, well, I, I don't know. I grew up here. I speak English. I went to school here, What you know, whatever. My first job was here. My parents go back to the founding. But I'm not American, right? Because, you know, I don't have ideas that are consistent with America. Now, that, here's the other side of that. The other side is this. Uh, nations are not just predicated on, they're, they're not predicated on, on ideas. So ideas are certainly a, could be a byproduct, could be the result of, could be something that's shared in common uh, in general among people of a nation, of course, but nations by definition cannot be reduced to ideas. Nations are extensions of families, essentially. And just as you would on a smaller level, look at a family and say, well, that's a Christian family. Well, or, hey, is every kid in that family saved? You know, that's not what you're saying. You're saying, in general, the tone set for the house is a Christian ethical system. They, they respect the Bible. They go to church, right? These are the things that you would, you're not saying that you guarantee everyone's saved in that house. It's a Christian family. Uh, the family looks similar. So mom and dad had kids, and the kids uh, have characteristics that are similar to them, that look like them. Now, what about a family that has a, uh, kids that are adopted? What about a family that is mixed, that the father died, let's say, and there's a new father, and now, well, okay. But that doesn't, just because you have differences genetically doesn't change the nature of what a family is. So uh, the, the thing that actually makes adoption, in my opinion, special is because of the very nature, of the very fact that you are, including someone who under natural processes would not be included and you're extending to them the privileges of what it means to be in a family. This is what uh, God does for us. So it's a beautiful thing. But we wouldn't say because someone adopted a, a child that their genetics has nothing to do with a family. If we really, if, if someone actually believed that, then they would be all for the, the new trend, which exists now, of uh, children to adopt Instead of, so instead of parents adopting children, children now, or young adults, adopting families of their own making. Families that are uh, composed of friends who hang out, um, kind of these peep group things where, you know, there's a maybe an older couple somewhere along the line who acts kind of as the, the parental figures. But it's all, it's artificial, essentially. They're, they're, they're mimicking something that exists in the wild, that it, it exists in nature, that God ordained. They're mimicking it. But um, and, and nothing against friends giving necessarily in and of itself, but they're you know they're doing things like that. They're they're that's their substitute, let's say, for Thanksgiving with families. We're gonna have the friends together, and the, and that is the new family. Gangs are kind of like this to some extent, right? So we wouldn't conclude. I think most rational, sane people wouldn't conclude that genetics has nothing to do with it. Obviously, there's an element of that uh, involved in a, in a natural family. Uh, we would, um, so, so religion, uh, genetics, uh, shared history, uh, we both, um, if we're part of the same family, we might have uh, not just genetic things, <laughs> same diseases <laughs> in my family, right? Well, we all have this autoimmune stuff, but we can look back and say, well, um, we have the same kind of heritage. We have the same, we, we've been given a, a legacy and um, of which we're supposed to steward. We're supposed to conserve the good parts of that legacy. And 
uh, and it, it serves as a glue when, when you have, uh, even when um, there's shared experiences between families where you have a, another family, their grandpa was in World War II, your grandpa was in World War II, they share similar experiences. So that, that is also part of it. Region tends to be part of it, right? So families nowadays, this is happening a lot where when kids become adults, they go and they move other places and so forth. And, and that's more, we're more transitive, but uh, the natural order is, and the pattern of human civilization is, you stay within the same general areas. Even if you look in, in the ancient world, I'm thinking of the uh, nation of Israel, they were divided into tribes in specific geographical areas given to them that were supposed to be conserved. These borders were supposed to be conserved. So um, so you have all these different things. You have, you have land, you have uh, so, so region, you have... Um, genetic connections, you have uh, heritage, history, shared experience, uh, you have religion, you have language, a common language, all these things, when it fans out into a larger group, a nation, these all play parts in that. Now, none of that means, I know the, the, the people from the other side, the people who I just described, who want to say that nations are just ideas, they start freaking out at this point because they start saying that, that that's, they, <laughs> they shake uh, that's racist or whatever. That, that's uh, that's horribly bigoted because you, you're not including other people into your group. And, and to that, I just say that no, that's nonsense. You can, you just like you can believe a family. Uh, naturally speaking, this is what a family is. Here's the template. Here's what God designed. And then you can recognize that there are things that come up that uh, don't exactly match that design. And there's there's situations that. Um, especially because of sin, really, and living in a sin-cursed world. But there's situations that arise that, uh, that, that change. They don't change the definition of what a family is, but they may uh, change your particular situation. So particulars versus the uh, absolutes or the template. So um, it is perfectly fine. And, and I've never really seen why this is controversial. But it's perfectly fine to think that the United States was settled by and large, and a lot of the founders said this explicitly, by people from a certain geographic area, England primarily. Uh, they brought with them their traditions, English common law. They brought with them their religion, Christianity. They brought with them their language, their stories, their songs, and they established the United States. Now, there's a broad difference between even different groups of English people who came, but that those are the people who came, right? There's nothing wrong with seeing that and saying other groups from other regions with different experiences have also come to the United States, and we've allowed this, and they are included. So they are now part of the family. They're part of, you can say they're part of the nation, but it's, it's a, an adoption. It's comparable to that. So I'm not saying someone quotes me, John thinks that's adoption. I'm not saying it is adoption. I'm saying, though, it's it's similar to... I'm, I'm trying to give you a parable. I'm laying aside family, and then on a larger scale, I'm saying, you know, what is it when you have a lot of immigration and stuff? Well, here's where we are with the United States today. This is what Joseph Spurgeon, I think, made a great comment when we were by the campfire talking about this. He said, it's not a nation, a nation. It's an empire with multiple nations that have now developed organically and immigration's played a big part, but so has just staying in, in regions for periods of time that, that, that have played a part in this. Um, and so what I don't, I don't pretend to know what all the nations would be, but you, at the very least, you have uh, Native American 
people groups, and they even call themselves. The, I, I was earlier this year at the Navajo Nation. It's in Arizona. Are they not American? Right. Well, it's, it's, they have their nation, right? Uh, you have uh, settlers in different areas that came in the Midwest, a lot of Germans, a lot of um, you know Dutch. Uh, Midwesterners are much different than New Yorkers, okay? Uh, and Southerners and even different regions in the South are going to be different than one another. And so when we, when the United States at its inception, politically speaking, you had much stronger local states and regions that had much stronger local identities, even in the state of South Carolina. And this was a time when there was much less people, <laughs> but the upcountry and the downcountry were very split. And um, it, it was really, I think the civil, well, it was first the Revolutionary War, but then or the War for Independence, and then the, the Civil War really bonded those regions more and created kind of uh, uh, more commonalities. But uh, shared experience, again, going to war together creates shared experience. But they had a different economic interests. So I think what Joseph Spurgeon is saying, I agree with. When, when, he, when he, he, he never even gave me permission to share this, but <laughs> I guess I am. Uh, I don't think he'd be upset with that. We are we are a country, we're an empire, essentially, with many different nations. So I tend to shy away a little bit from even referring to America as a nation singular. I just, I've just, I've just, or naturally started to not do that as much, even though that's a habit that I heard a lot of conservatives growing up talk about. I just don't do it as much. I, I don't think it's, it just doesn't seem to be accurate to me. Uh, if if that's what a nation is, but then again, I have a different definition than I'm going to call them more neoconservative types and libertarians. I guess would would agree with this. Would, would agree with the, this uh, proposition nation notion. That's what it's officially really called, the proposition nation that we're contingent on this proposition. That's what makes Americans America. I would disagree. I'd say no, it's it's not. In fact, someone can disagree with with even liberty and freedom and whatever you want to say, and they're still American if they grew up here. If they uh, if they're citizens of this country, if I'd say, especially if they have a claim going back generations, I mean, that's there's these are the kinds of things that make you or or give you a, uh, a justification for uh, claiming the legacy of being an American, right? And of course, in our country, we have a system set up uh, by which someone gets their citizenship uh, it, through an assimilation process. And um, it's from what I know of people who've gone through it, they say, look, I'm, I can value your, and they, so they still make sometimes a distinction. They'll say, I'm an immigrant, you're a native here, but I value your, the system you've set up here more than most of your children do because they went to public school and were learning to trash it. So we've, in some ways, at least historically, I don't know about currently, we've, uh, we've almost done a better job when we bring someone through an assimilation process with them understanding at least the 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 idea behind the ideas behind setting up the country the way that it was set up but these ideas didn't exist in a vacuum right they came through a process of hundreds of years of sifting through english common law of uh, biblical principles distilled for us in many respects traditions entering in situations that were unique to uh, people groups in certain regions with certain economies designed for certain things. And, and and that's just the legal end of it. That's not even other factors of culture, but that that didn't happen in a vacuum. And so here's where the difficulties arise. John, get to the meat. Okay. 
If someone believes in freedom or liberty, and they are from, let's say we convinced, Joseph Spurgeon said this, I thought it was brilliant. If we convinced all the people of Iraq to believe in American legal principles, all right, do they cease to be Iraqi? Or pick what other nation you want to pick. If Ireland adopts the United States Constitution, are they no longer Irish? Their, their nation just all of a sudden ceases to exist? Or are they still Irish? What is a nation? It's going to be the big controversy moving forward with the Christian nationalism stuff. What is a nation? Is it just ideas in the mind or is it something else? See, this was a failure, I think, with trying to nation build even in Iraq was in Afghanistan. We just saw that recently. When you start to impose these um, American understandings of liberty and quote unquote democracy, spreading democracy across the world, right? These, the people in these regions have different religions. They have different traditions going back thousands of years. And it, it's not going to work out for them the same way it works out for us. Does that mean that we don't have universal uh, right and wrong, an ethical standard that God has laid down? Not at all, of course. But the application of it's going to look different in different places, just like different Christian families, even in your own church, are going to do things a little differently. What I mean, I was just talking about this uh, with someone the other day. The movies I was allowed to watch as a child versus the movies they were allowed to watch as a child. The things I was allowed to do versus the things they were allowed to do, right? Would we say, well, there's a disagreement. I guess there's no ethical standard. No, we're just working from the same principles, but we're, we, we're going to pick things that are suited better for our situation. And so tradition does play a part. Why, you know, I could give you so many examples, but why 18? Why is 18 the age to vote, to go to war? Uh, there's so many privileges that come when you're 18. When you're 16, you can drive. Why? Why have we determined that? Is the Bible? No, it's not the Bible. It's, it's, it's wisdom over time. It's, there's principles we're working off of, but this has been distilled in tradition. It may not be the same for every state or every region, depending on what the education system. And, and there's so many factors. So all that to say, I think this is, I hope this is more understandable now that I've taken a lot of time to flesh this out for many of you. I hope that that's starting to, because I know some people didn't understand this when I've talked about it before, because it's kind of heady and we're not used to thinking in these terms. I hope now you're at least starting to see some of, some of the questions, some of these questions I'm going to ask Stephen Wolf too, when I have him on the podcast. So uh, on that note, I'm going to, I'm going to start talking a little bit about uh, the controversy surrounding Sam Francis, which Stephen quotes. I want to look at some of your comments though here. Um, John, the, the, concerning the school funding by local property taxes, doesn't it make sense that the community should be able to implement a classic Christian school since it is their property tax dollars? Well, yeah, I mean, the idea behind the, the whole the, uh, design behind schools initially was that they would be community based. They would be often uh, funded by or sponsored by the local church. And religious education was just part and parcel of what an education was. You didn't have education that wasn't religious. Of course, it's going to be, there's going to be religion. So as things have developed, and this has taken a long, it's been a long process. Now it's obviously the Department of Education sets the rules. And now it's separation of church and state. And local communities don't have, they have some sway, but not, not what they should over curriculum and uh, what their school, what their kids are learning. So 
I think it's the parents' responsibility to train the children. That's why I'm really positive about the growth of homeschooling. If, if a father, depending on situations, again, if, if, if the father or if there's not a father, if it's the mother, if it's a single mother household, if they want to oversee the education of their children in some way, and there's a mechanism by which to do it, and that's the only way. Or I under, totally understand. And and that, believe it or not, I was I was out in where I was in Grant, Nebraska, and I remember uh, the one of the issues brought up was that the local school was having a play which had some uh, feminist kind of undertones in it, I, I suppose. And I was thinking, wow, you know, that's kind of like that's great because <laughs> if that's that's the main issue you're concerned about here. I mean, that is nothing compared to what's going on. The gender anarchy that is taking place in, in my area where I live right now. So uh, there might still be a few places in this country where you actually have decent public schools, at least public schools where um, the local community, because of the human scale thing, that there's just less people, more accountability and more people from the region involved in, in the process. You can still, I mean, I've heard of places today that still do prayer in public school, believe it or not. These are these are rural areas, okay? And um, I mean, it's a lawsuit, so maybe waiting to happen, perhaps. But they're they're just highly Christian areas, and so uh, so yeah. Um, my my approach to this, my approach to localism, etc., all uh, all plays into my view of all, all kinds of things, including education. My approach is just so different than the typical neoconservative approach, or I should just say political conservative approach, which is you know vouchers and things. And I'm kind of like, okay, but we need that's that's kind of a band-aid that's you're putting band-aids on issues that are so uh different uh another uh comment here it seems like everywhere everything is referred to as racist now no kidding no kidding i mean it's ridiculous it really is and it, what saddens me is how political conservatives get involved in this so quickly now too they they view it as a way to gatekeep their side to keep the idea is well if the left is going to accuse us of racism we need to police our movement to make sure we don't have act, act, any racists in it. But then they, they're so sloppy with how they apply their rules and what racism is. It's, they just end up, the left becomes the actual gatekeeper. Um, so, yeah, there's some, uh, there's some good solutions if we would think, I think, more localist. And that's going to be a process. And the encouraging thing is I think the conservatives that are my age and younger are more willing to do this. And it, it, there's, it's a complicated set of factors. I think a lot of it has to do with growing up in the Cold War era and the post-World War II conservatism. There's a, I have a whole bit that I've planned, a whole video I have planned that I'm not going to do today on that. And growing up at that time, I think there was some situation, there was a condition, there was a factor, a number actually of conditions that led people into believing that we kind of we're one people we're not the soviets we're we're this kind of gaining this identity it's the closest we came to i think lincoln's idea of what america is i don't think we ever hit it and i don't think we ever really can i don't think it's it's really achieve it's very hard to achieve you'd have to uh, stephen wolf just said on an interview you'd have to really close the borders uh completely even to legal immigration and you'd have to build up trust with intermarriage uh, between people and it, it would take a long time generations to really gain um, an identity. And even then you have a human scale problem. Different regions are so separated, they're going to develop organically. Accents are even part of that. They're just, there's a lot of different things. So anyway, um, more, more than I can really talk about now, but I, I find it a fascinating topic, so I like talking about it. But here's, here's the deal with, um, with Sam Francis. I wanna bring this up. So who's Sam Francis, John? Well, he's a political theorist. And this is, uh, this is Stephen Wolf's book, 
The Case for Christian Nationalism, the, the book that everyone's going nuts about right now. Not everyone. <laughs> Most people are buying it and I think looking forward to reading it. It's, I think, the num still number one uh, in like three different categories. But here uh, on Amazon, but here's the quote in chapter one that Stephen Wolf opens with. Are, are you ready? Tribal behavior is what makes human beings human. Take it away from man or man or humankind. And what you get is not pure man or liberated man, but dehumanization and from that tyranny. Sam Francis. Sam Francis was Roman Catholic. He was not a Protestant Christian. Um, he wrote for the Washington Times uh, during the 80s. He wrote for Chronicles, a number of publications on the conservative side. Uh, in fact, Rush Limbaugh, and I think it was 2016, played a whole, he did a whole bit on a Sam Francis piece saying it was the Trumpiest thing he had ever seen. And it was a piece from 20 years previous and just praising it. Sam Francis died, I want to say, and I don't remember the year. It was early, I want to say early 2000s maybe. But so many of the things that he said in the 80s and the 90s are happening now. So he has a reputation for being prophetic. One of the things, and I've talked about this before on the, the podcast, is anarcho-tyranny. He coined that term. It's a situation in which the law-abiding citizens fear the government. They fear the police, that the police are going to come and get them for things they did. Little little things, things that they, they didn't get their taxes right. They, they missed something accidentally. They... Uh, I don't know, went to a political rally, ended up in a place they shouldn't have been, but didn't realize it, January 6th. And uh, and now, you know, they're wanted. They went, they protested abortion and they, and now they're being investigated by the DOJ or what. So the, all these things that we're seeing around us, Sam Francis talked about this, said that that's what's happening. That's what's going to happen. The, the, um, it's going to, the whole design is to inflict terror into the minds of regular, decent, ordinary Americans. And at the same time, allow actual criminal behavior to run rampant so that there is a need for police, pro-police, back to blue, right? We need them. Uh, we need to, so we need order, but it's just the, the criminals aren't the ones that are being targeted. So anyway, he coined this and it was a brilliant, brilliant observation. And his focus was more on class, I suppose, on managerial elites and what they were doing, how they were a threat to decent, ordinary, middle-class Americans. And, um, you know, he talked about globalism and just, um, in fact, I, I talked about in my presentation on Saturday, I talked about managerial elites and and how, and, I, and I'm going to do a video on this probably later this week, but connecting the dots of how we got to the situation we're in now where you can have almost 90% of quote-unquote evangelicals voting for Trump, and yet their leaders overwhelmingly are afraid to voice any support for Donald Trump. And if they do say anything, it's generally at the higher levels, it's against their, the very, their very constituency, the, the, the base of support they're supposed to have. How did that happen? How is there such a chasm there uh, between the way that the people at the top of the movement feel and the people at the bottom? Well, Sam Francis is observations actually explain some of this. So that's who he is, and that's why he's known on the right. However, there's been, uh, over the last few years, a, 
an attempt to really cancel him. And and he was he was actually he he lost his gig I think at the Washington Times in like the mid 90s or something. I think it was 94. Uh, because he was he was smeared essentially uh, as a racist. And um and so I want to just talk I don't this isn't going to be a full-fledged. I know people who don't like Sam Francis aren't going to be satisfied necessarily with uh, with this bit that I'm doing here, but I at least want to address it because I've seen it a number of places, and I haven't read everything from Sam Francis. I probably don't agree with everything from Sam Francis, and there's maybe even things he said about race. Who knows that I haven't seen that maybe I don't agree with about Sam Francis. That's not why people like Sam Francis, though. The reason he had the position he did and he was uh, as popular as he was in the conservative movement was because of the things I just talked about. So here's the charge. The charge is that Sam Francis, and now Stephen Wolf, because he quoted Sam Francis, uh, is a racist. And this is what Sam Francis said about that. I just want to read you. This is a quote from him. He said, I understand what I said was controversial. I believe there are racial differences. There are natural differences between the races. I don't believe that one race is better than another. There's reasonable solid evidence for IQ differences, personality and behavior differences. I understand those things have been taken to justify segregation and white supremacy. That is not my intent. Now, that quote alone, that's that's going to make uh, a, a especially the gatekeepers in conservative movement today go nuts, go absolutely nuts, because you're not allowed to believe that there's differences between uh different groups of people. And, and a lot of this comes back to what I was speaking about earlier. If, if the only thing that matters is ideas, is and ideas matter. Ideas have consequences. That's the book we're going to do uh, by Richard Weaver next month. I mean, ideas matter. There's no doubt. But there's a, uh, a, a downplaying of any other difference that nothing else really matters. You can take someone speaking a different language from a different part of the world and drop them in the United States. As long as they have that idea of freedom and they want opportunity and they believe in rights, they're American and they're, uh, they're just as American as someone whose family has been here, who's a descendant of George Washington, who, you know, has, has a family has fought in every war that America has ever been part of and that kind of thing. Right. So that's, that's what I'm talking about. There's, it's a flatlining. And, and so people would, would bristle at this. Now, the funny thing to me is the same people who would generally bristle at that, they would not have any problem with just about any other nation in the, in the whole, or, or, or people, or race, or whatever, uh, whatever term you want to use for different people groups. They wouldn't have a problem with any non-white people group saying that uh, their, their race, their shared experience, these things are all what make them who they are. And that th- th- that would be fine. We should preserve those things, right? But for if you're Western European, especially, or any any of the countries colonized by the English, you're not allowed to even go near this. And that's what, and you see that San Francis kind of says, well, there's a difference between people, and that's what he gets in trouble for. Now, whether you agree or not isn't really the point of this. The point is just to say that look, even if you disagree with this, this is what the controversy is technically over. It's about, it's, it's his view, and it's, it's in the quote that I just read from, uh, that Stephen Wolf quoted. It's his view that there's this thing called tribal behavior or identity politics or whatever you want to call it. The left calls it identity politics. And Sam Francis, the unique thing about him is he took this into account. 
So a lot of conservatives just deny that they are the identity politics um, is is terrible. We shouldn't ever have it. It's evil. And the way the left practices, it's easy to see. I, I've spoken out against uh, how the left uh, uses identity politics. But the right tends to, I think, the political right today goes overboard when they start to be like, there's no differences. They, they sort of minimize any differences between people groups and people who come from different regions. And so we're all just flatlined Americans. And it's hampered the Republican Party. Donald Trump was different in this regard, too. Donald Trump did see differences. In fact, he catered to different communities. If you listen to what he says when he talks about to the black community, he'll talk about the problems they have and what he's going to do. I'm going to you're going to have jobs under me. You're going to he actually did. He this is why he was a threat to the Democrats in part, because he did what a lot of Republicans aren't willing to do. He acknowledged there were differences between different people groups. And uh, even when he talked about illegal migration, he would say things like it's not often played. But if you listen to his speeches, how he how he loves Hispanics or he loves Mexicans and, um, and and he wants he wants them to do well. But because he made this distinction that there is a group called that and they're, they're maybe they're different in some ways, that's that alone gets him an ire of suspicion from intellectual conservatives who want to make every reduce everything down to abstract ideas. And so Sam Francis strategized based on this. And Trump kind of more or less would have been uh, probably more in line with, with Francis's thinking here. Uh, so would Pat Buchanan, so would, um, well, a few other uh, people I'm thinking of, but uh, not a lot of mainstream folks. So Alex Dent, who writes for the Dispatch, David French's organization, uh, wrote a, a hit piece against Francis a few days ago. And I don't know if this, I don't know if this is timed, but it was, the timing was that this ended up being the thing people are using against Stephen Wolf. Stephen Wolf quoted Sam Francis and look at this hit piece against Sam Francis. Now I, I haven't read a lot of Sam Francis, but I was, I knew who he was years ago because I knew about some of these concepts I talked to you about like anarcho tyranny and stuff and managerial elite. I knew about this stuff because of things I had read from Sam Francis. And so I didn't know about any racial anything. I just knew about the stuff he's popular for. I don't think most of the people today who are criticizing Stephen Wolf for quoting Sam Francis do, they are aware of that. They do know anything about it. They seem to have just read a hit piece and they're just believing it, which is like going to a Wikipedia page and just believing what it says because it, it knocks someone or going to the Southern Poverty Law Center website. I mean, this is someone from the dispatch. I mean, David French's work. You're, really? You're going to, okay. So David French's organization, this batch, employing Alex Dent, claimed Francis had kept his white nationalism semi-private. Well, now, first of all, Francis was very public about his views, and the views that Alex Dent critiques are public. So what do you mean he was private? That's just, it makes it sound like there's a nefarious kind of under the surface that, no, come on, he was public. Francis said, uh, he, he quotes things like, Francis said that slavery wasn't a sin. Yet he ignores the context. And actually, it's funny enough, in the context, Sam Francis was arguing against the Southern Baptist Convention's apology for slavery. And in that critique that Francis made, he basically said, look, if they're apologizing for actual sins, if they're, you know, abuse or whatever, uh, they, 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 sure. But you got to take into account biblical teaching on this. And I've made a similar point and been called the same things. But if you just have to take into account biblical teaching on it. Uh, man-stealing sin, right? You can certainly look at different aspects of uh, the American slavery and you can say, 
this or that was a sin. But when you give the impression that something the Bible doesn't specifically condemn is a sin, then the list gets longer because the left has about a million things they want Christians to condemn as sins that aren't sins. And you just open Pandora's box. And that's basically what Francis was saying. And here you have this gentleman writing writing against Francis, a hit piece, just just giving you a little sliver, a little sliver to make you hate him, but not giving you the context. Dinesh D'Souza, unfortunately, wrote the boilerplate piece, basically, against Francis in a book called The End of Racism in 1994. Jared Taylor from the uh, American Renaissance challenged D'Souza, and he wrote him, uh, in and basically uh, him along with um, with some others basically threatened to sue him uh, over misquotations that kind of thing just sloppiness in his book and so here's the thing Dinesh D'Souza's book there was one printing and it was basically recalled it was destroyed and they'd had to do a second printing and basically the the accusation the controversy is that he did kind of what Alex Den is doing he just kind of ripped things out of context he he misrepresented people, including Sam Francis, in the book. And I know some of you like him. You like his work and uh, like the, I liked it, the last documentary he did on the election. But I've known for a long time that Dinesh, I, I've actually had this question in my mind. How come Dinesh D'Souza, things he does would normally be condemned by other conservatives and he would lose whatever position he has. But when he does them, he's not. Like uh, even... You know, and I think it was bogus, to be honest with you, for the most part, from what I know about it. But this whole uh, election uh, that, that he violated campaign finance laws. Well, if that, if that was someone who wasn't Dinesh D'Souza, likely they would not be they would not have the status that they have. I think Steve Bannon might be a, a parallel. I don't know. But Steve Bannon does not have the status Dinesh D'Souza has. And and he was even closer to the president, but ran Breitbart and everything. But he you got to. You figure out in your mind. You think about it. Why do you think there'd be a difference? I don't actually know for 100%, but some of his um, work has been, in my opinion, embarrassing as far as the, historically just way off. Some of it's good. Some of it's bad. But I've for a long time, I've just thought Dinesh D'Souza, he's part of that group that I described earlier that thinks of America in just very ideological terms. He believes in the proposition nation, which isn't really a conservative idea, even though it's now on the political right. It's It's more of a... 19th century progressive idea. So this is who he, that's Dinesh D'Souza. And I know many of you like him. So I'm trying to just get, I understand some of the stuff is good, but, but he tried to gatekeep here. He tried to let's push Sam Francis out. That's what the, that's the boilerplate stuff that everyone's referring to. And so they're, they're going back, they're stretching back to this work that Dinesh D'Souza did in 94 they're reviving it then to bash people like Stephen Wolf and Christian nationalism in general. Here's the main issue with all of this, this, this controversy. Um, Dent, in his recent article, he failed to acknowledge that Francis's political thought is, the popularity of it is not because of what he said about race. It's because of what he said about Marian and Jerry elites. It's, it's because of what he said about anarcho-tyranny. It would be like quoting Abraham Lincoln, okay? A good quote from Lincoln. And then someone saying, did you see what Lincoln said about black people? And then trying to discredit you as a horrible racist because you quoted someone who also happened to say very negative things about black people. It's like, well, that's not why I quoted him. It's not even what he's known for, right? It's, it's the same thing here with Francis. 
And, and like I said, I mean, Rush Limbaugh has spoken glowingly about Francis. Um, his advocacy was more for those middle Americans who were the, the, uh, the nucleus of the American Republic and not, not against the elites. That's how he kind of saw. If there was a division, that's the division that he most often made in his work. Now, he made, he made some great observations that I actually am thinking of doing more episodes on. He actually critiqued the Christian right. Listen to this. This is one of Francis's, one of the things he said. I thought it was brilliant. The Christian right would have done nothing to strip the federal government of the power it has seized through this century. Restore a proper understanding of and enforcement of the Constitution and Republican government. Prevent the inundation of the country by anti-Western immigrants. Stop the cultural and racial dispossession of the historic American people or resist the absorption of the American nation into a multicultural and multiracial globalist regime. So what he's saying there is like they're good on abortion. They're good on these other issues. But if they, they, they don't they, they don't have the capacity to defend themselves as a people, um, what the followers of the religious right needed instead, Francis concluded, was uh, an end to the dom domination by a hostile ruling class that uses state power to entrench itself and to wreck the country, the culture, and the middle class as well. Francis, Francis continued by calling for a movement to challenge the ruling class and stated that it did not matter whether the movement was religious or not in focus. Now, this is, this is stuff you got to think through because I don't even know if I agree with all of it, but it's for someone writing in the 90s, like when Jerry Falwell was very popular at that time, at the time, I probably would have brushed this off. Now, when I'm seeing the children of that generation and how, okay, they're pro-life, but look what they've, they can't see the problem with all these other areas. Uh, he was right. <laughs> he saw something that I wouldn't have seen at that time. And many of you probably didn't see. And and so he gets in trouble for this because he uh, admits he, he, he he wants to take into account this tribalistic kind of elites versus decent, ordinary, regular Americans thing. Um, he also wants to hedge against threats to uh, white people, to the middle class, to the, the people historically that settled in the United States. So he's against affirmative action, right? Uh, he's uh, against mass immigration. He's against globalism. These are the kinds of things, though, that get him in trouble, that he must be, he must hate people or something. So I wanted to give you a little bit of understanding. There's some great pieces on Francis defending him. Uh, one of them's in Chronicles Magazine. You can go check it out. I was reading them this morning about this. And uh, so uh, there you go. So anyway, I'm going to look at, we're going to keep going, but I want to look at some of the chat uh, questions here. The concept of the managerial elite comes from the late James Berman. Yes, uh, I believe that's right, because if you look it up, in a, they'll, but they'll mention Sam Francis. He definitely developed the idea and why it was a threat. Um, let's see. Uh, <laughs> a lot of little uh, comments here. Thank you for coming to Indiana. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. I really had a good time. Yeah, Ben Sass. Ben, yeah, Ben Sass is like a lot of these neoconservative types tend to be, they're like Russell Moore's, but they have Republican under their name in Congress. Ben Sass is one of them. So a lot of good, good, uh, <laughs> someone used the term boomer con. See, I, I wasn't trying to use that term because I've heard this term. And at first I thought, I thought it was kind of the okay boomer, like, but it's not really. It's apparently, it, it is an actual... It is an actual term. Maybe for a, another episode, we'll talk about it sometime because, and how it's used. But this, uh, how 
baby boomers in particular, post-World War II generation, departed from the conservative, um, what conservatives would have thought before that time. They, on cultural matters in particular, they they kind of adopted some innovative thinking. And um, and it's very interesting uh, to get into that stuff. All right, let's uh, talk about some other stuff here. Uh, switching gears a little bit. I want to talk uh, about some international stuff. Do we want to go there first? Let's see. Uh, and some COVID stuff. And we're going to get to Greg Johnson eventually too. So let's go to the international, or let's we'll do the COVID stuff uh, next. Speaking of managerial elites, <laughs> and not having in mind the interest of the people that they're supposed to represent and serve. It's one of the basic concepts to this idea of managerial elite is that previous elites, because we need elites, right? We need, that's not a bad word necessarily. We need hierarchy. We need people at the top of this. We need examples. We need heroes. We need leaders. But in pre, pre-modern times, this is roughly speaking, uh, there, was an, there was more incentives for those who were in the serfdom, in serfdom, um, you even find this in uh, in Christian societies that had um, servitude or slavery or some kind of a higher a labor hierarchy. You find in these societies a sense of responsibility. Uh, the landowners need to serve those who serve uh, that work on their land. So you don't talk about living wages at the time. You, the living wage, the living, the survival came from the generosity of the landowner. If you read even old books like Old Christmas, I read this every year. What you find is that. The, the lord of the manor, the, those who owned the property, would open up their home for the peasants, for the people in their community, and it was uh, a beautiful thing, right? It was something that there was a mutual affection. If you can believe it, there was a mutual affection that existed between those who lived on the land and those who owned it. Can you believe that? How is that even possible? Servants, slaves even, uh, loving their masters. I mean, this was very common. The, and one of the, the problems with uh, presentism, when you start to go back and you look at the Dark Ages, or when, when uh, arranged marriages were the only way to get married, and when the people didn't decide, it was the divine right of kings, and slavery was, you know, if you go back into these times, and they were horrible, they were, that's, that's what you're supposed to think now, which is why every medieval movie is like, there's two themes, I'm going to marry for love, or it's, uh, let the people decide, uh, no more king. Uh, or the king takes a backseat or something. Well, managerial elites today, when we think of the people who rule us in a sense, they don't, we, we don't actually trust them. <laughs> they don't have our interest in mind. And, and there's, a, there's reasons for it. And Sam Francis talks about this. But that's one of the reasons I think we go back and we look at those, those times as so horrible is because we're imposing our idea of what leaders are onto people from the past. And there were incentives at that time that don't exist today. And we saw this come out very clearly with COVID vaccinations. A new study has just come out. I'll show you. Here it is. There's tons of studies now coming out that are questioning, right? But here's the study from the International Journal of Epidemiology. Brand new, October 22nd, 2022, two days ago is when it was published. And in this particular study, the International Journal of Epidemiology found that vaccinated people were more likely to experience severe COVID-19 than unvaccinated people. Hmm. 
So the whole narrative about, well, at least you're going to get, you know, get the vaccine and, and uh, get the boosters and get, do all this. And, and at least at least you'll get a, a milder case or you won't get it or whatever. We're finding out more and more that this was just wrong. It's absolutely wrong. It's negative effectiveness. And I pointed this out when this was happening, that the numbers coming out of places like Israel and the United Kingdom were where we had numbers were showing spikes. All of a sudden, variants are going everywhere now that the vaccines rolled out. Why is that? Well, now we're, we're getting studies that are claiming uh, that they're showing this. And <laughs> well, the issue I see when it comes to even Christian circles is how many pastors and Christian leaders carried water for Fauci, for global elites, making millions of dollars, probably billions in some cases, off of this. I mean, it was, you want to talk about the whole industry, we're talking trillions. I mean, we're talking, it's astronomical. They carried water for these guys. They made it so missionaries in the Southern Baptist Convention had to come home if they didn't want to get the jab. Yeah, even when they didn't have to do it. There were sarcastic letters. I remember at Southeastern, Ryan Hutchinson wrote a sarcastic letter about trying to get all the students to take the vaccine because after all, he didn't grow a, a third arm or whatever. I mean, it was almost universal. The support for these experimental genetic treatments. And now that the evidence is coming out, now that the people that, and including doctors, including the person that, it practically invented the technology used in these vaccines. Now that there's all these studies to support what they were saying all along, frontline doctors, uh, it's, it's disheartening that there is no attempt that I've seen to even apologize or acknowledge that they were wrong that they trusted the wrong people, that they shouldn't have trusted these elites, and that there were actual scientists doing good work at the time, pointing these things out, and they were ignored. Look, I understand. Ignorance. I get it. You're you know, a pastor who got the vaccine, just believed what he heard, believed even what President Trump said. And I understand ignorance. I understand you locked down your church for a little bit. I understand some ignorance initially. But my goodness, that hurt people. Even, even decisions made in ignorance cause damage. And, and for some pastors, there's just absolutely no excuse. For some Christian, and I'm not just talking about pastors, I'm talking about ministry leaders, I'm talking about evangelical elites. There's just, there's no excuse for many of them. They uncritically, I mean, even some who backed, I mean, I think John Piper was the one who made, wrote an article, you know, about the fetal stem cell, uh, the, the fetal cell connection in these vaccines. And then like was six months later, encouraging everyone to get it. Uh, it would have been better to keep your mouth shut <laughs> as a pastor. If you're going to weigh in though, you, you better make sure that you got your ducks in a row and, uh, and acknowledging that would be go a long way to rebuilding trust. But when it's not acknowledged and the more time goes by, yeah, you just lose the support, the, trust of the people that you're supposed to be serving and they're not going to trust you when you start talking about other things and i don't blame them and so the, t the clock is ticking on this and so i just wanted to, to remind everyone of that bring bring this up especially if you go to a church even where the pastor 
or or your ministry where this was pushed, I think you need to bring it up and just say, look, I think you need to make a statement. You push this thing. It's causing more damage. And, and I'm not even talking about the myocarditis or any of the other issues. I'm just talking about it didn't help with COVID. Here's the evidence. You, you need to probably say something here, Pastor. So um, I'm not, hopefully I don't, I'm not coming across, I'm not trying to be too harsh, but I'm, I'm genuinely concerned about a misplaced trust that Christian leaders have for globalist elites, the managerial elites who have, do not have our best interests in mind. And they do good to read Sam Francis on those particular subjects. Okay. Uh, all right, let's, uh, <laughs> let's switch gears. Now that I'm going to be completely denounced for this episode, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, we're gonna talk a little bit about China and Russia and all that, and then I'll come back to Greg Johnson and leaving uh, Memorial or Memorial PCA, leaving the Pres- Presbyterian Church in America. So uh, let's talk about. We'll start with China. So there, last week, uh, the former, uh, I guess he would have been the leader of the Chinese Communist Party, was sitting next to Xi current uh, leader of the Chinese Communist Party, who just got appointed for a third term, which has never happened, five-year term. Uh, Hu uh, Jinto, Jintao, uh, he was sitting next to him, and he was escorted out of a conference for the Con- Chinese Communist Party uh, in the middle of the conference. And Pres- or, uh, Chairman Chi was then, like I said, elected for a five-year term as the General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. And then he, he makes a speech at this particular conference, and he says that full control of Hong Kong has been achieved, and Taiwan is next. Taiwan is next. The Chinese are giving us every indication that they are planning on invading Taiwan. It's not a mystery. Where's the United States at right now? Now, on the domestic front, we just this study just came out that test scores are falling precipitously among uh, elementary school students, especially in math. We obviously have the economic woes that are going on, and the social fabric is being uh, just completely destroyed by the sexual anarchy. And um, I mean, you you see it even with the media. They want to keep talking about this issue when people are having a hard time even buying food and fuel. Meanwhile, in the military, the military is short 650 pilots, 25% short of recruitment goals. More soldiers are leaving the Army National Guard at a faster rate than they are enlisting right now. And the Heritage Foundation just released a study ranking the military preparedness or the military itself as weak. This isn't good. This is not good. And the, I think the mindset behind a lot of this with progressives is they want so badly to have domestic control and they want to control every institution that they're willing to sacrifice your safety so that they can propel their political objectives in the military, meaning they can appoint uh, transgender and LGBT and whatever other a person that agrees with their ridiculous ideas. They're trying to get them to climb the ranks. They're, the COVID stuff, of course, plays into this quite a bit. 
And they're weeding out anyone who would be effectively an independent thinker. Well, in the past, the United States, the reason, one of the reasons we've done so well militarily in conflicts is because we actually have a lot of independent thinkers in this country. And the whole idea behind immigration even, James Madison talks about this, was to bring in people who would benefit the people already here. Thinkers, innovators. It's not the mindset we have now. So that's a proper immigration mindset. It's not the mindset we have now. And we don't have people, we have robots. We're, we're, we're becoming a, a country in which the military is robots, not just actual robots, drones, but a, a, automated personalities, people who aren't going to think for themselves. And that's a scary thing. And I don't want to downplay that one bit. I just uh, saw something the other day. Actually, I don't, I can't confirm this, but I saw something about uh, in, in Great Britain, I guess, there's a quota for pilots. They don't, they don't want too many white males as pilots. And so China's trying to hire them. Now, I, I didn't look that up before the podcast, but uh, is it believable? Yeah. <laughs> Even if it's not true, it's believable because of the craziness we're seeing. We're shooting ourselves in the foot in the West with these ridiculous policies. And we're not thinking about the protection and the well-being of our people. And you know, we want to know why Trump gets the uh, popularity that he gets is because he actually talks about caring and loving his people. And it's the same thing with President Bolsonaro, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. I just uh, watched at least as much of it was that was free on YouTube of a Ben Shapiro interview, and I was very pleased. Because so much of the right-wing media in this country will condemn Bolsonaro as a fascist. And Shapiro, to his credit, didn't do it. He gave Bolsonaro a, a platform to talk, he listened to him and you know what, what he was saying, very conservative stuff. He countered the claims that, he, that you know, under him, the Amazon's being burned down. He, in fact, it was the other side that killed the legislation that would have uh, actually led to preserving the rainforests better by monitoring them from satellites. And it, it's all, it's just political theater, what's going on. But the election is on October 30th. Uh, I'll be at the men's retreat. <laughs> But that's when the election is, the runoff election. So be praying for Brazil. Uh, Russia right now, um, I want to say this for patrons. I will be having an upcoming interview, most likely, with Patrick Lancaster, who is a journalist, independent journalist. And I think that's the future of journalism, honestly. It's not going to be these big corporations, I'm hoping at least, because Patrick, uh, pa Patrick has just been right there on the front line giving, and even if you don't agree with his perspectives on anything, he's giving you the information a journalist should be giving you. This is what's happening here. And um, so I found out he was a student, an online student at Liberty University. And I was like, I got to get this guy on the show. Uh, fascinating guy. One of the few people that I have started uh, supporting on Patreon just because I want him to have support to do what he's doing. Anyway, uh, if you're a patron, though, you can suggest questions for me to ask him about the conflict over there in Russia. So I just wanted to mention that. Uh, also, the Italian prime minister, there's a cold controversy there because Guess what? She doesn't want everyone coming in to her country and changing it. So she must be a fascist, right? Yeah, okay. Uh, I read a book recently, uh, and I'll end with this on a sort of an up note here. I read a book recently on the, um, before we get to the Gray Johnson stuff, on, it was kind of a future prediction kind of book. It's called, the name of it is The Return of Christendom. And the whole premise of this book, I think it's written like 2015 or 16, but it's the whole premise is that actually because of birth rates 
and because of just the necessity for just for survival that Christians are in the United States and across Europe uh, and, and even across the world, but they're, they're going to reclaim previous areas in which they were influential. They're going to become influential once again because the left is suiciding itself, but with lower birth rates, sexual anarchy, th things, diseases, and th all sorts of things that aren't healthy. But the right is still having children. And they, and they use some examples of like the Amish and Mennonites and like conservative, uh, conservative in the sense of like traditional um, Christian, very, very traditional Christian groups and how many kids they have and how many of those kids stick, stick around like the Amish community is growing. And they're saying that this is going to happen. Now, I'm very skeptical about that because I just it's hard for me to think that someone's going to retain those beliefs. You have a family, let's say, of six kids, a typical Christian family. How many of them go towards the left, generally speaking? That's the issue. I So anyway, this book, though, makes this case that th this is inevitable and that um, in Eastern Europe, especially former Soviet states in particular, there is a return, mostly Catholic, but to some traditional kind of religious influence in the culture. And uh, to incentivizing birth rates. And so it was it was interesting. And, and I think if that book were written today, they would take what's happening in Italy uh, and in Russia, and not to mention um, places like Poland uh, and what Viktor Orban's doing in Hungary. They would take all of this stuff and they would use it as evidence that there's a trend starting. I'm not so convinced, but it's possible. It's possible. Time will tell. But again, it goes back to a localist uh, solution here. Raising up kids in your family, having as many as you can, if you can't, um, being influential with other kids, whether that's adoption or just being influential with the, the young people. And I mean, you can go to get involved in college career groups, you can get involved in high school ministries, you can get involved in your church. I mean, that's obviously the, the left understood that children are our future a long time ago. And since they're not making many, they want yours. And so it's very important to make sure that that doesn't happen. Uh, but that's the on a macro level, they're saying that that solution is actually going to work. Well, it's only going to work if on a micro level, everyone kind of uh, is aware and plays their part. All right, let's switch gears once again uh, in this mega edition. And let's talk about what's happening right now with the revoice stuff. And we're going to I'm taking you now to Memorial Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, Missouri. In fact, we had someone come from that region uh, to the conference. It was a long drive to uh, Indiana. I was really grateful for that. But um, there's a report. This is October 18th, 2022. And this is from the, what is this? The Aquila Report. They're reporting that the Tennessee Valley Presbytery approved an overture from the session. So in other words, this is for those that are not initiated into PCA politics. It's like they're suggesting, they're, they're introducing a piece of legislation. That's maybe how to look at this. Uh, something they want to see changed. Uh, requesting that the Missouri Presbytery, that's where Greg Johnson is, who started Revoice, you know, this whole side B Christianity, you can uh, have same-sex desires and that's not a sin, right? Okay. Um, they submitted uh, a request to investigate this, the session of Memorial Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, Missouri. The overture based this request on uh, BCO 45, where a higher court can be asked to investigate a lower court if a credible report has been made. Now, here's the question. What's the credible report? What do they want to investigate? Well, um, here it is, essentially. Uh, let's see here if I can find the exact language that they use. 
Okay, so they they hosted an event called um, the the Celestial Bodies event on September second or twenty twenty two. They are claiming that there's a poster for the event that featured scandalous depictions of people, and that one of the headliners for this event, who calls himself El Draco, has performed as a transvestite and boasts of heading at. Uh, headlining at the St. Charles Pride Festival. The overture also highlighted that Missouri Presbytery had previously adopted certain actions to redress and remove previous scandal associated with the chapel. So the, here's the thing. They hosted an event that crossed a line. And they're saying, we need to investigate this. Well, that seems to be the catalyst. What I, It seems to be the pretext for this. Uh, I don't know for sure. Maybe just they were aware that this was going to happen, but... October 18th, Dear Church Family, Memorial exists to welcome, uh, to bring a welcome of Jesus Christ through the gospel, you know, it's a, uh, blah, 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 filler stuff, um, introductory remarks. And then it gets to this, that they are leaving the Presbyterian Church in America. Here's the, the reason they're leaving. First, uh, if Greg Johnson, the pastor, is tried by the PCA sooner rather than later, Will that hold up the church's denominational realignment until after the trial and ruling has come, a judicial process that can take months or years? We have now learned that, yes, once a church is in this process, takes a case, thereby entering into a judicial process, the pastor involved must see the case through unless another denomination receives him into it. So it's to avoid this. It's to avoid this coming potential event investigation. Uh, the other reason that they give... Uh, is this. We also heard, uh, let's see, you asking, whatever we decide, and it will be the congregation that decides, not the session. We are your servants. How can we do it together as a family with love, even with, uh, actually, this, maybe I'm reading not what I intended to read here. Sorry. <laughs> that wasn't the section. I'm trying to remember what the section was. Maybe there wasn't another section to this. I read it this morning, but that seems to be the overall motivation. There was a, There was language in here, though, about them complaining about kind of the way they're treated in the denomination, as I remember. And yeah, baseless judicial attacks on us, they say. Uh, we're deliberately targeted and we need to protect our pastors. And so, yeah, they feel just attacked being in the PCA, essentially. Uh, we hope that memorials withdraw will strengthen the hands of our friends within the denomination as their opponents have capitalized on the wedge issue they found. And knowing that the PCA has a celibate same-sex oriented pastor, we can now remove memorial from that equation. Uh, so there, so, so this is the telling language here. We hope that this will strengthen the hands of our friends. Let me repeat. We hope that this will strengthen the hands of our friends within the denomination. We believe this decision to be the most loving option for Memorial, for same-sex-oriented believers, for our pastors, and yes, for the PCA itself. Don't doubt me on this. There's a political move here, and they're signaling it right in the end of this letter. This is the same thing I think happened in the SBC, and it still happens when Beth Moore left, when Charlie Dates left. Uh, you, you have pastors who took even a lot of money uh, in, in right before they left. And then, you know, black pastors who got money uh, from the North American Mission Board and then they said, you know, the SBC is racist. I'm leaving. Dwight McKissick threatens this all the time. I'm an SBC pastor. And if it's not going to be cleaned up this mess, I'm leaving. Right. What's the purpose of that? What's the purpose of that? 
Well, the purpose is to try to use it to strike fear or to get headlines, to attract attention. So then you can get your message out. Beth Moore is a big name. Beth Moore leaves the SBC. Wonder why? Hey, there are a bunch of bigots in there. Really? The SBC is a bunch of bigots? I didn't know that, but now I know because Beth Moore told me. Uh, or um, if I leave, that means everyone's going to leave. If I leave the PCA, then you just wait. There's a lot of people are going to follow me right out. So this is, I think, it's a political move in some ways, at least partially, to try to, um, it creates a victim sense that we are persecuted by the PCA. And so now the others who agree with with Greg Johnson in the denomination can keep pointing to that. It's like, look, brothers, look what we did. We, we kicked out these people. We were mean to them. We got rid of people we shouldn't have gotten rid of. We made them feel bad. We, they should still, they're Christian brothers. And look what you did. You're the meanie. You're the meanie. Nothing's actually happened, though, yet. In fact, the PCA has demonstrated over and over that they really don't have the fortitude to deal with Greg Johnson appropriately. But the very possibility existing is what's causing this. So uh, that's that's all I wanted, really wanted to go over today on the list for this mega edition of the Conversations That Matter podcast. I hope that was helpful for some of you in untangling some things and understanding some things. I'm going to just go to the questions, if we have questions. Uh Let's see. Um, there's a lot of comments right now on the live feed here. Shrinking of the federal military may be good if state militias can fill the void. That's the problem, though. It's the National Guard that's losing more than... Uh, and, and I know there's some states have, in addition to a National Guard, some sort of a militia. Like in certain states, like every male member by the Constitution is part of the militia. But I don't... Again, localist option. We definitely... During the War for Independence, there were these committees of correspondence that acted kind of like a shadow government, and they were they actually had more justification for uh, more authenticity and being a governmental body just because they represented local people better and functioned in the governmental capacity. We don't really have that right now. I think the more we look to events like January sixth, and the, the not that it's wrong to go there to to um, protest against a, a for election integrity or, or against um, what happened, etc. We need to be looking and putting a lot more energy into local options, though, as much as we can. Getting involved with your election board, right? So localist options have to we just have to put more time in this. I'm not seeing it done quite enough. It's starting, but um, let's see. Ninety <laughs> percent of kids continue as Amish. Yes, the Amish community has a high rate of people staying within their community. What are they doing? What are they doing wrong and what are they doing right? So this is why the destruction of the public education system is so important, uh, someone says. Now, that's happening in real time. It's a failed state. The education system is, is dropping. The question is, are enough parents going to be able to get their children out of there and get a good education? That will, that will be very determinative in the future of our country. <laughs> John, did you like the pies? Uh, I, I'm assuming these are pies from, uh, from Indiana, uh, when I was there. Actually, I liked everything. And we had, a uh, just a, an amazing potluck. I, I've noted that in other regions of the country, different regions have different concepts of what it means to eat together as believers. Well, in Indiana, in rural Indiana, 
what there like 15 soups and chilies and i mean it was really good but yes everything that that i had was really good uh in indiana any comment on stephen wolf's book on christian nationalism well i just kind of gave some comments <laughs> i didn't go through everything in the book but i'm gonna have him on and that's when i'm gonna have him speak to it himself and uh, i think we're gonna have a long episode i'm just gonna I have a lot of questions for him so you yeah, stay tuned for that are there any good news these days? The last few years have felt particularly hopeless and dystopian. Yeah, and that's the world we live in and, and to some extent. And it, you have to have a, you, you have to realize God's in control and only, you, you have to be informed somewhat about what's going on, but you don't want to be a, a junkie, a news junkie where you're constantly uh, just in the news cycle. It's not healthy for you. Think about the things you can influence and then put your, your mind. If you can write letters to the editor for your local paper, do it, right? If that's all you can do. If all you can do is pray, then do it, but but do something. And I, I think one of the problems, and there are many problems, but one of them with this Q thing that some conservatives got into with trust the plan and Trump's really president and all that, is they just sat on their computer researching stuff. They didn't actually do anything. If you really want to see change, run for public office, do something locally. Don't just sit in front of your computer and think Trump's got it figured out. Or they, No, he doesn't. And no, they're not going to come save you. Uh, so trust in the Lord. There is some good news, though. And, and I talk about this actually in the speech. Tim Bushong will probably put it out there of what's happening on local levels that you're not hearing about. And how people are homeschooling more. And they are, um, even the conference I was just at. I mean, normally, who do you go to for a conference? A large organization. It's not, unless it's a big church, you don't do conferences. Well, now small churches are doing it. Small churches are training uh, pastors from within their congregations. I'm seeing it. So. All right. Well, um, I think that's about it for today's episode. I appreciate everyone who uh, was streaming uh, with me. Uh, thank you for all your support. Uh, God bless. More coming later in the week. Bye now.